the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to podcast, Care of Cooper Cherry. Very excited today to have uh, Dr. Andrew Culp join us. Andrew is a <clears throat> media theorist in aesthetics and politics, currently teaching at Cal Arts. Um, he's also an author, uh, been published several times, but we're going to delve today into his book called Dark Deleuze. But first, Andrew, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your Monday morning to come to the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Absolutely, absolutely. B big get for me because, like I was telling you before the show, I had uh, stumbled across your article, The Insurrectionary Foucault, a while back and had planned on doing a podcast episode on it, but it kind of, the logistics sort of fell through on that. But I uh, really enjoyed the article, and then I just kind of happened to see you had uh, gone on another podcast recently. I was like, oh, man, I should uh, see if he's interested yeah, absolutely. No, I, I feel like I've been doing a little podcast tour recently, which is great because the book that, that often gets the invite was written in 2016, so it's been a little bit. But, you know, they're books, so I think they'll last for a little while. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that they're, I mean, I feel like it's such kind of a niche field of kind of like this post-structuralist approach to, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of an anarchist, I guess you would say, more or less. That's great. Kind of a, the weird sort of confluence of like anarcho-communism, post-left anarchism, and then even some egoist communism or anarchism through Sterner. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm friends with a Latino anarchist collective here in LA who helped set me up with my apartment, and we hang out a lot. And they're uh, left calm post-situ anarchists. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, great flavor. Very interesting. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background. How did you sort of get into, I guess, the larger kind of post-structuralist area of thought? And what was what was your kind of first experience and like what kind of gripped you? Yeah, I mean, I have a funny sort of itinerary where I was exposed to this form of political thought through high school debate, um, which, you know, there's a small group of us. Uh, we're we're kind of loud about it, um, and my frustration w with it was for some people it was just sort of a game that they played, and for me I took it very seriously. But it also made me a little cynical about politics. But then I met a really influential professor in college who got me to start really thinking of what radical politics might be. And so I started doing some really on-the-ground stuff, which in part is what made me an anarchist, because you just sort of interact with all these petty authorities when you go to a demonstration or a protest or you know, a public hearing or something. You realize just how frustrating it is to try and interact with those people. And so I did some professional political organizing, um, felt that it had found its sort of limit in my life. I didn't want to be a lifelong sort of 
organizer, which felt like a glorified cheerleader. And so then I went back to school and that's where I sort of found myself since and spent a lot of time in the North American anarchist and left calm community. Um, and I really try and figure out how to balance those things in my work and my thought, the people I connect with, how I spend my time, um, all that stuff. I think we're roughly, we're probably in the same kind of age cohort pretty closely. Do you feel like, I, I kind of get this feeling, but maybe I'm just was unaware of this, that I think, because uh, I graduated from high school in 2001 and mm -hmm. was in college from, you know, that fall until 2009. And I feel like there was less, like Marxism in general, like that was less, I guess, in the popular imagination. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I came to some of these ideas through what sometimes gets called post-Marxism, but I think that that, that term is sort of hard to define sometimes. Um, but I was reading Hart and Negri, you know, their monumental 2000 book Empire was so influential for people. But by calling itself post-Marxism, it also allowed some people to be pretty shallow and paltry in the forms of Marx they did. And so it was graduate school that really got me back involved with that. And I think it's for the better, but for a lot of people, you know, it's a big commitment. It feels strong, uh, strange to sort of commit yourself to a particular person and their ideas in the strong sense. And so I, I like the moment that we're in where some people are getting exposed to the ideas and then how they sort of deepen their engagement is, is really varied. I, I usually, inter I'm extremely online for one and kind of in this space of like the, I guess the intersection of like anarchist leftist theory, Twitter largely. And so a lot mm -hmm. of the people that I'm interacting with are, you know, they're probably seven, eight years younger than me. And I think a lot of them are more like Marxist oriented than I am. And I think, I don't know, it's kind of maybe a product of that, that time that I was kind of coming up and learning about these ideas. Because um, I don't even think, I, you know, I have a sociology undergrad and I think we barely mentioned mm -hmm. any Marx at all ever mm -hmm. in any of my sociolo sociology courses. Which is so funny. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, Marx, Durkheim, and Weber are like the three founding figures of sociology. You'd think that they'd sort of go back to them. Yeah. And we definitely discussed a lot about Weber and Durkheim in particular, but Marx, not much outside of just like, I think I vaguely remember superstructure and yeah that sort of conflict theory element of it, but they didn't really ever go into like the political political economy critique. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a problem of academic thinking, particularly the social sciences too, in which they want to just have a easily definable, containable concept, almost like you could write it into a textbook and you attribute it to a person and then it all just becomes sort of shorthand. And this deeper, wider engagement ideas where you read them and they reread them and become transformed through time and history, which, I mean, that's historical materialism, um, just doesn't really have a place, at least in the way in which in undergraduate, at least people get presented the, these ideas for the first time. Even I think it's funny as well that Hegel really doesn't like, in my intro to philosophy class, I don't think we ever, mm -hmm. we never, Hegel was never even brought up, mm -hmm. which seems oh, insane totally. now looking back at it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the funny thing about the very online world, too, is there's a lot of Marxists. But if you were to ask them about sort of even what chapter one of Capital, which in many ways is Marx's most important writing other than outside like the uh, 
the manifesto, they might not be able to talk to you about it. So that means it's been regurgitated through these very strange, very partisan approaches. You know, there's a Maoist group here in Los Angeles where they're sort of partially Gonzalo affiliated, which is, you know, the leader of the shining path in Peru that genocided a whole population of people. So very strange. But uh, let, let's go ahead and we'll jump into into Dark Dillas a little bit. Mm. And I just want to read one of these quotes because I really enjoyed this bit here is the ultimate task of Dark Dillas is a modest one to keep the dream of revolution alive in counter-revolutionary times. The end of this world, the final defeat of the state and full communism. Just want to give that a hearty hell yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you kind of structure the the book primarily on kind of, I don't know if I want to call them necessarily arguments, but three sort of points. One being the sort of canon of joy that celebrates Deleuze as this affirmative thinker of connectivity. Number two, re rehabilitating, rehabilitating the destructive force of negativity by cultivating a hatred of this world. And three, proposing a conspiracy of terms that diverge from the joyous task of creation. Yeah. I mean, some of this allows me to make interventions in this very specific way and how Deleuze is read and understood. But I think that a lot of it to me is connecting to a political task at hand that seems very now for people and also untimely in the Nietzschean sense of trying to get out of our present and push it towards some other direction. So as someone who's not as acquainted with Deleuze's work as I'd like to be, um, definitely have Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus on my tremendous stack of to-do reading. Talk a little bit about what you mean when you say this, this sort of canon of joy that's, um, I guess, ostensibly associated with Deleuze and the kind of popular imagination. Yeah, I mean, the reception of Deleuze is kind of interesting because he means such different things to different people. For geographers, he's a theor theorist of territory, so the way in which humans, animals, life itself carves out territories, but also undermines territories in order to explore new worlds. For the more literary world, he actually had a series of commentaries on uh, literature, some French, but actually he was really obsessed with American authors like Fitzgerald and, um, you know, a bit Beckett. Um, in and through Guattari, he talks a lot about uh, Kafka. Um, but First and foremost, he's a philosopher trained in the French philosophical tradition, and he helped birth a version of post-structuralism that was more interested in its material dimensions, but not in the sort of crude materialism that you might get in, let's say, uh, Daniel Dennett in the United States, where everything is matter, and so scientifically let's study what that matter is composed in, so a sort of almost a... Uh, complement to contemporary physics. For him, philosophy always has this reciprocal relation where it's able to draw some from the other forms of uh, thought that are going on from science and art, but also it contributes something to them as well. It shows uh, some of their limitations. It undoes some of the forms of thought that they do. And so there's an image of thought that got consolidated around who is Deleuze and what is his thinking. And it was about this 
mutation and creation and this transformation that there's a flow of life, there's a flow of the world, and that every time we try and interact with it or identify it, there's always going to be the sort of underlying mutation and becoming and transformation, which I, I think is really sort of beautiful, and it comes from a lot of the, the figures that he draws on, like Henri Bergson. But I think that when you get to the real hard metaphysics or the hard philosophy behind it, I don't think you need that image. I think he provides you tools to keep working and changing and transforming his thought when the situation that we find ourselves is different, too. You know, like a mid-century when he's writing all the way through the sort of 70s and the 80s, he's seeing a transformation of France to an industrialized society, an urban society, and people you know, fretting over and concerned about, you know, the assembly line and cars and uh, people being stacked on top of each other. But we're in a much more sort of like cyberpunk uh, information society in which it's not just not the assembly line anymore, it's something else. And he has a late essay in which he tries to sort of unravel some of these terms. It's called The Postscript on Societies and Control, in which he says we're moving past uh, Foucault's disciplinary societies to something else. Maybe it coincides with his biopolitical turn. Perhaps it involves some other elements. And he almost retrospectively looks back at his old work and says, wow, maybe I wasn't critical enough. Maybe we need to, to be even more ambitious about rethinking where we are today. And I mean, is am I right in thinking that the rhizome, and you go, go into this a bit in the book, but is that maybe the... I guess sort of central idea that's attached to this kind of this idea of connectivity in Deleuze. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, so in a in a broad sense, his political work with uh, Guattari is often described as molecular. So for them, they think that when you look at let's say an organism or even a thing, that when you look at it from a large scale as a single self-contained object, they call it the molar level, a, a term they they take from both biology and chemistry. And they say, actually, if you look at the molecular level, all the different sort of weird constitutive parts that make it up and the flows of those constitutive parts, you're going to get a very different perspective and it's going to put you in a different direction. And they even coincide, they, they say that coincides with things like uh, the new left and a concern for... Um, minor movements. And so they want to come up with images of things that describe this molecular universe or this molecular cosmos. And so the first one they do, which is their introduction to A Thousand Plateaus, which parenthetically I should say is a book. It's written with many chapters, but they say you can read it in just about any order. But they say they give two directions. They say start with the first chapter, which they call the uh, they call them plateaus, the first plateau and rhizomes. And then finish with the final chapter, which is written with a sort of summation. But how you find your way through the piece is, is all up to the reader. So the first one on rhizomes, it's a different image of the world that's not about trees, nor is it about a simple sort of flat horizon in which everything sort of appears the same and equally. It's using all kinds of different uh, examples from literature, from art, from science and the natural universe and everything in between. And the keystone one is rhizomes, which is 
that plant that has no center. It doesn't simply have roots in a trunk and you follow it and it's in this sort of hierarchical pattern, nor is it just this flat hierarchy in which everything has this uh, sort of false democratic appearance. It's this thing that has transversal, weird, unexpected, tangential sort of connections and so can follow uh, itself. It can split off and recombine. Um, and they say that this is not only an image for, let's say, something like social groups and social organizations can function and transform, but it's also a model for thought. It's a model for making. It's a model for so many other things. It also it has always felt, and again, I'm not as acquainted with the Dulles of Wa, but I thought the the image of the rhizome as well was just one that really felt, I don't know, like it was very much so in the spirit of like an of what we as kind of anarchists are going for, as opposed mm -hmm. to that sort of rigid um, arboreal structure. But you mm -hmm. want to go beyond that. Yeah, I mean, you're right to connect it to anarchist issues because um, there's a certain version of anarchism, not, not the one that I'm most inclined to, but that I interact with quite a bit. It's interested in questions of organization. Um, for me, I don't think organization is a primary concern, and I'm sort of part of a so-called anti-organizational wing, which is not so much about always fighting organization, but to try and demote the importance of organization and promote other more important parts. But, um, you know, we all know those anarcho-syndicalists, maybe they say that they're wobblies and, you know, they can show you their IWW card or something. They want, they want a union, even though they have no reason to be in union or they don't need a functional union. And so they promote syndicalist policies of having spokes councils and really elaborate sort of democratic procedures. You know, this is also what happened in Occupy with, you know, David Graeber telling a story of they were completely disorganized because it was just some really big promo stunt for ad busters. But he swoops in there and teaches them all the hand signals and how to have some sort of really endless permanent conversation where nothing ever gets decided he's like yes this is it this is anarchy and for me having been part of all those endless meetings i was like no <laughs> that's that's not the answer and so there's a part of the rhizome that's picked up by other thinkers it's kind of interesting so like the swarm the idea that the emergent qualities of you know, birds, as they flock and fly, you know, they're always shifting and changing position. There's no ever, not ever one strong leader. And it's not something in which they get down and they sort of decide. It's just sort of an, an impromptu thing. Meet so many ways in which we've seen crowds, we've seen riots, we've seen these other moments of spontaneity. And so um, with the swarm, you start thinking about digital swarms or viral content. And I think that's generally the way in which people have thought about how Deleuze, particularly in the context of media and digital culture, sort of formulates itself. But the problem that I was seeing is that it seemed a little too democratic still because it was just all about the sort of endless process and micro changes, and micro transformations, but it doesn't actually get to some of these big um, upheavals and transformations that I really have found important as ideas, as symbols, as moments, as events in my life. And so uh, part of the task of Dark Deleuze is to say um, Deleuze was a revolutionary thinker and he really wanted significant large-scale transformation to occur. And so it's about time to reintroduce those questions to make sure that we're not just following this endless discussion, endless process anymore. Right. And that, I think that's definitely the... Um critique I often hear when I'm engaging with uh, leftists that are more kind of in the Marxist tradition, at least on the on their face. Um, mm -hmm. Would you be would you be willing to 
I guess maybe kind of describe this sort of anarchist world that you're find yourself in a little bit more like in terms of is there a strain of anarchism that you find most resonant for you for yourself yeah I mean even when I was back in high school I was reading post-anarchism which I think or at least a post-structuralist anarchism which I'm not sure is really a dominant trend anymore. For me, that was Saul Newman and Todd May who came out with really interesting philosophical works, but I'm not sure how much it ultimately translated or tied into specific political projects. Um, I found myself really interested in left comms who have a historical tradition that I'm willing to read and know some of, but is, is not super influential for me. But, you know, like maybe a great example of this is Harry Cleaver, uh, you know, uh, Austin-based political economist who tied it to the Italian autonomists, which were in DNG's orbit. In fact, um, Tony Negri of the autonomists was in uh, jail for a while in Italy. He was elected to parliament into a very radical party, and they've, the, his fellow parliamentarians tried to uh, uh, revoke his parliamentary immunity, and so he fled to France under the Mitterrand uh, administration, which was accepting some refugees after the years of lead. And so he lived under the name um, Tony Guattari for a while and was living in one of Guattari's apartments. So anyway, there's a lot of overlap and influence with those folks. And so for me, you know, I, I don't see anarchism and Marxism as necessarily opposed. Obviously, there are ways to oppose them. But, you know, I'm inspired by the situationists and pro-situs who find themselves to be anarchists. I really like Tikkun and the Invisible Committee who claim, you know, like when they're around anarchists, they say, oh, I'm not an anarchist, I'm a communist. And when they're around communists, they say, oh, no, I'm not a communist, I'm an anarchist. So it's this, this, this constant sort of like pushing out the boundaries, never being too sedimented into any particular tendency or perspective because they want the flexibility to be able to sort of push on those boundaries and try and keep beckoning towards something um, new and fresh and interesting. I'm actually, I'm hoping to, uh, I had corresponded with uh, Todd May. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast after maybe in January yeah. or something like that. So He's phenomenal. I mean, I, I really like his work. He's uh, really smart. He knows how to package these difficult ideas in bite-sized chunks where you can actually sort of have conversation about them. And so I think he's he's super important for me. But uh, back to Dark Deleuze, um, your second thrust here is rehabilitating, rehabilitating the destructive force of negativity by cultivating mm-hmm. a hatred of this world. I think yeah, that, so, that idea oh, of negativity sorry. and hatred, like that's an interesting approach. I think that might scare some people in terms of what you're getting at, but I think um, it's not necessarily, I don't know, there's, there's more to it than that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, some of it is this uh, affective tonal question, and some of right. it is philosophical. Um, so for, for Deleuze, his metaphysical project is to say that there's no such thing as a negative term, which is sort of part of the ways in which he's trying to contend with and um, erase the Hegelian legacy in France. Because for Hegel, things are not only in contradiction, but they're in contradiction in a certain way in which one thing is trying to uh, negate the other. In a, there, there's the way, the simple way to explain it for me sometimes, say that for Deleuze, there's no such thing as antimatter. There's just positive terms that maybe come into conflict because that their existence s- sort of sees themselves as competing. But there's no such thing as like purely uh, negative terms, like a void or something like that. Um, and so uh, for him, there's a bit of a 
ethical project that he builds out of that because of the way in which you read Spinoza, who also provides that link for him. But I think that very easily it leads to um, this sort of attempt to have a happy, joyous, like don't don't criticize. You know, he's sometimes leveraged as a figure of post-critique, which I find terrible. And then um, this idea that I don't need any negativity in my life. I'm only going to affirm good things and I'm just going to ignore or put aside bad things, which, of course, is a simplification. But there are these people who have simplified him in this way. And so just on a pure philosophical level, I think it's important to distinguish. But like you said, there's also this uh, trans this this move that I make that's about um, hatred. So he has these lines in a few texts, most famously in Cinema 2, where he says, the problem is we need to cultivate belief in this world, which I think is the idea that, you know, we need to take what we've got and work with that and work with those things to maybe create a new world or to get outside these circumstances that we have. But for me, I think I'm just as willing to say, well, let's start where we are, but also say that some of it needs to be rejected or refused or transformed or gotten rid of. And so when I say hatred, it's hatred for the things that we find intolerable, the things that we just um, don't want to have any time for, that we want to say that we need to say no to these things, make a break from them, and you know, uh, uh, undermine the existence of capitalism, patriarchy, but just all these little tiny injustices that, that we force on people. And then thirdly, this idea of proposing a conspiracy of terms that diverge from the joyous task of creation. Yeah, um, the structure of the book, which is, which is one of these sort of short books, is first an introductory essay that sets everything up, and it's very much written as like an essay with a through line. But then the rest of the book, which is really the body of the book, is what I call a series of contrasts where I take a term, which is kind of the consensus um, interpretation or something that Deleuzeans have um, held up as uh, where thought needs to go, and I actually create a new term, not opposed to it, but to the side of it, that's like a fork in a road that's a different direction that can be taken. And I suggest that maybe we should uh, give up on that old concept and go move in this other direction. So, you know, I have a few. So in terms of subjects, Often they're talked about in terms of assemblages or being in the product of an assemblage. And assemblage is a quite popular term in Deleuze studies and Deleuze-inspired people these days. But I say that we should move towards the idea of unbecoming, where we're sort of subverting and undermining who we are and becoming something very different. Or for instance, there's a debate that became really popular with uh, philosophy, blogging, and uh, a sort of younger generation of speculative realism that came out in the sort of 2007 or so and has still uh, been quite popular over the last decade. And I say, enough with the realism. In fact, we need to re-embrace materialism, which is not so much about um, affirming the reality of a world as it is, but is very much about understanding how it hasn't always been this way and it will um, not be this way in the future. I want to move on to a quote um, from the piece as well and get your thoughts on this. So you say the problem is they know perfectly well what they are doing, but they keep on doing it anyways. And to me, what that immediate, the image that I get is this. I feel very connected to this because I, I see what's going on. Um, I'm basically participating in 
you know, capitalist production and sort of reifying all of that by participating in having a job and participating in social media, et cetera, et cetera, knowing mm -hmm. that it's sort of having a very negative effect. There's exploitation of the global South, there's environmental disaster, but yet I continue to participate. Is mm -hmm. that sort of what you're getting at or? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love that quote and I get it from Zizek who, He's arguing that we're in a new era of ideology where it's a cynical ideology. So he's transforming that old sort of biblical passage of forgive them for they know not what they do, which is to say that people are ignorant of what they're doing and they need a little dose of education and then they'll be able to reform their ways or they'll even be so embarrassed they'll want to uh, transform who they are and what they do. Where he's saying that now we're in a moment in which things are... Uh, immediately obvious. People know the consequences of their actions, but they still engage in actions that are either self-defeating or go against what their putative values are, are. He says that this is really what we need to figure out if we're doing ideology critique today. It's no longer about uh, miseducation and re-education. It's about this other um, series of motivations and, and underlying conditions. And so I think some of it's really simple. I mean, like, uh, capitalism and the reason that capitalism is able to exploit us is it withholds our means of subsistence and requires us to secure it on a market through money and so we feel obligated to have to uh, get money in order to buy the things that we need to live and we do it because we think that that's just the natural order of things well I think the cynical ideology approach would say well we also understand that maybe there might other be other ways of doing it but um, either we just say we want them and we don't really do much for it, or, um, you know, for some reason we've decided that we don't want them. I think the al alternative problem that we have today, too, is neoliberalism isn't just about the present. It's not just about, you know, privatizing resources and selling off public education. It's about laying bets on certain futures and investing in certain futures being inevitable and necessary and other ones being depotentiated and seen as scary or not possible. Um, and we saw this with the 2008 financial crisis in which the banks, which were a future that were deeply invested in, looked like they were going to fail and they were said to be too big to fail and so the government decided to bail them out to reboot that future rather than to explore other options even though the political economic situation appeared as if this was the perfect opportunity for something else to emerge and so you know uh where are we what do we need to do i i, I think I, I think we're in a weird situation now where people aren't really sure where to go. And so I think this is where interesting subcultural anarchist and other political projects start mapping out that territory. And, um, you know, I have my opinions, but I think that uh, for me, the biggest thing is to uh, reveal that the future that we have been presented is bankrupt and it's corrupt and we don't want that. And we need to try something else. We need to sort of um, say that we're, mad and upset and see what else can be explored. I mean, the list was also associated with the anti-globalization movement in an interesting way before it became sort of like this darling of new materialism, um, which is a movement that I'm 
you know, I've, I have some people who I like who do it, but in general, I'm kind of suspicious of its political uh, intentions. And so um, it is kind of funny what different people's entry points are for him and his work. And there are certain ones that I would suggest in order to make sure to recover all the political aspects. And there are other ones that other people would suggest that I find like totally insignificant. And they're just sort of like stoner thought. So I've never <laughs> thought about it that way type, type things. Okay, I'm set up inside now, so this this should be better. Very right, cool. So I think this quote too um, about basically us we're reproducing the world as it exists. There's that. That's where that element of the hatred I think steps mm. in. And you go. I think you go into this a bit later on in the book, but I just want to kind of put a footnote there um, and delve back into a little bit where you sort of. Talk about the uh, the connectivity, and I'll just quote here. The first step is to acknowledge that the unbridled optimism for connection has failed. Um, and you can sort of see this, and your idea, of, vision of this is the internet and how connectivity definitely failed us. And, I mean, I remember being, I was in grad school really from like 2007, 2009, and that's that what the optimism was, okay, look, this sort of web point, Web 2.0 was going to be this really great democratizing force and really flatten out some of the hierarchies within capital, as as naively as that seems looking back on it. But that's definitely at the time I thought, okay, the, here there's potential here. But it doesn't seem to have. <laughs> it's it's really been, I guess, reintegrated within the systems of control more so than anything. Absolutely. So I think this is the key gambit of Deleuze and Guattari's work. Um, especially in Anti-Oedipus, I think it's posed very clearly. And then in uh, A Thousand Plateaus, it gets sort of complicated a bit. But let me just give you a Cliff Notes version of Anti-Oedipus, especially for your listeners. <laughs> um, That's sort a monumental of, task there. Oh, <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's so easy. It's so simple. Um, like I said previously, A Thousand Plateaus is this book where you can start and begin in, in 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 the middle and go anywhere you want Th that's not the case for anti-oedipus anti-oedipus is meant to be read start to finish and you're not supposed to sort of take this itinerant path you know um Gautari, who was for a time he thought he was going to be the person who inherits lacan's um the Cofrodien. Um, he was pretty prominent within the lacanian school he was like buds with lacan he was giving him uh, rides everywhere in the car. Um, he has this sort of falling out that sort of coincides with his collaboration with Luz that becomes anti-Oedipus. And Guattari himself, you know, he never graduated college. He thought he wanted to be a pharmacist, but he really wasn't good at it. Um, he was an autodidact, so he's always coming up with really interesting ideas, but they seem sort of half-formed and a little too wacky for most people. And so the writing process behind Anti-Oedipus is that D and G kind of meet each other and they chat and they think that it's just going to be one of these sort of like coffee things where you're like, oh, there's a new person who's going to be a part of my life where I sort of like meet and talk with them and hang out with them at parties or something. And instead, what Deleuze does is at least as Guattari describes it, he chains Felix to a desk every morning for four hours until he writes X amount of pages. Those pages then get sent off to Deleuze's wife in this very classic sort of 
uh, patriarchal um, 1950s relationship um, in which the Liz's wife, Fanny, then uh, transcribes those pages and gives them to Liz. And Liz just gets the stack and stack of papers of just like weird, unexpected, half-formed thoughts from Guattari. And then Liz rewrites them into a coherent through line into the book that becomes Anti-Oedipus. And so then what is Anti-Oedipus? Anti-Oedipus um, is an argument in and about both psychoanalysis and capitalism. They argue that the models that are coming through post-structuralism, namely Lacanian analysis and certain forms of Marxism, particularly Althusserian structuralist Marxism, and then uh, larger sort of post-structural ideas like Derrida's uh, work on the signifier, structural anthropology of Levi-Strauss, all of that, that it's good, but it's not historical materialist. So what they argue is taking all these different sort of structuralist and political positions and they put them in what they call universal history, kind of a joke on Hegel. <laughs> and they say that we can figure out when and where all of them came into being. They don't really account for capitalism in the way that they need to. And then they argue that the way through capitalism is schizoanalysis where the underlying processes of capitalism are already tearing it apart in so many ways. And if you find the right ones and ride them through, it will undermine capitalism and will create this new permanent revolution of a future that is about letting desire and pleasure expand and grow rather than trying to limit it or put it into a certain container. And the, I mean, there's, it's just so clever in so many ways. So they like take Lacan and they say, Lacan is kind of right, but he's a despot. He's really, yeah, exactly. That, that, that Lacan is the perfect figure of, you know, early modern European sovereignty. And so he speaks for the king. He doesn't even speak for capital. He just speaks for the king. So if you become a Lacanian, you will risk becoming a despot. And so we need to take some observations from Lacan and and really understand it, but say he's not even talking about the present. He's talking. He's he's trapped in the past. And if we want to move from the present into a new revolutionary future, not only are we doing away with a lot of Lacan, we have to do away with the forms of capitalism that we have right now that themselves are scrambling a lot of what Lacan's trying to do. So anyway, it's this deeply ambitious project in which they say psychoanalysis is largely tied to uh, therapy that tries to reintegrate people who are having a hard time integrating into this deeply schizophrenic moment of capitalism in which everything seems transforming and right when you think you have a grasp on it you lose your job you need to be retrained uh things get uh outsourced to india you know all these things that we're dealing with today um and they say what if that scrambling and that undoing is not something that needs to be prevented and staved off like a return to some older thing like the social welfare state or even you know some sort of monarchical despot but what if that that process is accelerated and enhanced and pushed through in a way that undermines things like private property, the monopoly of capital, but also labor aristocracies and all these other things that just try and temporarily stave off the chaos of capitalism. And we need to really sort of push it through to the end. Okay, that's anti-Oedipus. <laughs>
And so, I mean, my argument would be, and it is through Dr. Liz, that that was really interesting. It was an important intervention in the late 60s and early 70s, especially after this transformation in French society through the uh, 68 generation and this failed political uh, revolution, but a successful social and cultural revolution. But in fact, we have a different set of conditions today. And if we take their uh, method really seriously that you need to place everything in history as a good historical materialist would do and say that conditions change and so then also our diagnosis as well as our prescription has to change too. Dr. Lewis is ultimately trying to say let's come up with a new prescription because we're not in 1971 France anymore. We're in 2019, well, wherever you might be. And I've, you know, readers globally, but I talk to a lot of people in Latin America, in India, and in the UK, as well as the United States and Canada. So um, just back to just the, I remember reading that Lacan kind of tried to ruin Watari's career after the publication of Anti-Oedipus. Oh, yeah. Which I... Well, he, he tried to ruin it before it a little bit, too. <laughs> I mean, so he was sort of like doggedly pursuing Guattari and being like, tell me about the book. Tell me about this book. Tell me about this project that you're working on. And that he had tried to uh, undermine... Uh, an early essay that Guattari had written, he was going to publish it, I think, in Levi Strauss's journal or another sort of like, you know, contemporaries. And he said, oh, well, don't publish it with them, publish with me for one of the journals that he ran. And so Guattari like uh, pulled his piece from this other journal where it's going to be published. And then Lacan never publishes it. So, you know, the, the guy had a certain personality and sometimes it really worked for Guattari, but sometimes, you know, it didn't. I think that I, uh, the image of the monarchy, I think, definitely is very apt for for Lacan. The yeah. more you learn about well, and, his kind of personal life, especially. Oh yeah, and, and I'm sure you've seen this too. But um, there's that really amazing moment in which a situationist interrupts his lecture. Oh wow! <laughs> have but, you have you Lacan, seen it? It's on no, YouTube. Oh, it's a wait a Watari lecture or Lacan? A, a Lacan lecture. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. You know, w- when it. people. Yeah, when people ask me about reading Lacan, I'm like, you need to understand that Lacan was all about esotericness for esotericness' sake. I mean, he thought it was really essential for therapy for the patient not to know what the analyst was doing. Um, but you can tell it's also about this like very masculine version of French culture too. So you look at him lecturing, you know, and not only does he have the big Freudian cigar, <laughs> but he also has that huge coiffed hair. He has that. Um, you know, what would you call it? Like a scarf or a handkerchief coming out of his shirt. I mean, he is in so many ways like a dandy or a hipster and really trying to sort of create multiple uh, forms of appearance to really sort of bolster who he is and, and what it is. And, you know, those lecture halls, they're just full of people just wrapped with attention being like, oh, the master, he has all of these words that we just need to hear every single one. And so it's just hilarious when the situationist comes in because he just blows up the whole scene. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I've also heard that, like, you, I think you kind of went into this a little bit, that Watari was really the one with the most out there ideas. And yeah, I mean, he's an autodidact. I had picked up, I picked up a copy of Chaosmosis. Mm-hmm. check that out just because i really i mean that's what i enjoy it's like i want to have the most kind of out there experience mm-hmm. or encounter the works that are really pushing the envelope in terms yeah. of thought so i'm really excited yeah. to dig into that yeah it's 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 cool i mean um 
a book that I'd suggest folks read if they haven't, that's uh, actually perhaps one of the better entry points from a more history of ideas perspective, is Francois Dolce's biography, Intersecting Lives. And it's a huge tome, came out with the Columbia, it's been translated in English. And it situates them in their historical moment, it has some biographical info, it also goes into the ideas. And one thing that he uh, repeats in there is he said that well, I, I don't know how much you and, and your listeners know about Guattari's life, but he lived in an experimental um, insane asylum run out of an old chateau for most of his life. And so it was the social experiment where there wasn't meant to be so much one-on-one -on -one patient therapy sessions and was meant to be sort of constant group analysis as well as everyone pitching in to do as many chores as they were able to do. I mean, they there were like, you know, nonverbal autists there and other people. So, you know, it was very... Um, uh, singular of what everyone was able to do. But anyway, people who lived there said that they loved talking to Guattari, that he was just boundless in uh, clarity as well as helping people breakthroughs and revelations. And so it's just so funny when you read his writing because it feels kind of unhinged and kind of <laughs> weird and out there. But everyone said that he was great to hang out with because he just seemed to always you know, clarify things immediately. And it's almost the sort of disjunction between the two. Um, moving back to, to your work, I'm going to read the quote here. What is called for today is the death of this world, and to do so requires cultivating a hatred for it. And so you're sort of, I guess, plotting this trajectory from the death of God through Nietzsche and then the death of man through maybe what Foucault described, and now the death of this world. Can you elaborate on this a little bit? Because I, I definitely, I've, I feel a burning sense of hatred for this world, but mm -hmm. I don't know if I yeah. pro have I properly cultivated that. And how do you sure. how do you recommend <laughs> even how does one um, cultivate that hatred for the world? Yeah, so I think that there are two versions of this. One is the philosophical one, which I can get to in a second, and the other one is just like the pop culture one, which is we're in a moment in which people are thinking apocalypse. And so I think this is the material that we really need to go through. It's, it's so now it's so appropriate that I think that everyone needs to sort of figure out what it means for them, for the projects they're involved in with the forms of thought that it takes and to not deal with it means to not be dealing with really what's everyone's mind, what's on everyone's mind and is the cultural unconscious of the day, the philosophical version of it. Oh, I should say that the thing that, that interests and troubles me about it is so many of these apocalypses involve people doubling down on what's worse, the worst things that make up this world. So sexism and racism and homophobia, because they feel like they're reduced to bare survival. And those are the things that are necessary in order to succeed, to get to the next day, to live and survive. And I would probably argue the opposite is hopefully the case, that we realize that those are the things that are holding us back. And then if we are sort of reduced to mere survival, it gives us an opportunity to actually fundamentally undermine all of those things that we've naturalized to take for granted. But the, the philosophical version of it, you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't claim credit as being the first person to come up with this. I actually take it from Greg Flackman's amazing book on Deleuze called Fabulation. And, um, in it, he mentions very quickly what he calls three deaths. First, the death of God, which I think most people are at least passingly familiar with, um, comes from Nietzsche, he says we've killed God, but not everyone's realized it yet, which is to say that we used to take religion as both the cause and the meaning for the world. So, you know, 
why do we do this? Because it's what religion and God tells us to say so. And why did this happen? It's because it was in God's plan. And I suppose that still exists for some people. But by and large, people have ceded a lot of the ta that territory to things like natural science or the natural world. And we've come up with other reasons and causes. So then the second one is death of the human. I mean, I think that Foucault and others in the mid-century come up with a great uh idea of that that humans at least for now once we give up on god still become obsessed with humans and what does it mean to be human and these sort of moral quandaries that humans find themselves in as being the stuff of um inquiry and thought and speculation and so Foucault says well you know maybe we need to get rid of that maybe we need to come out the other side maybe it's not going to be an enduring way of thinking so that's kind of what postmodernism does I mean there's some ways in which it comes through the back door when we start thinking about cyborgs but machines and computers and a foreclosing and eclipsing of the human you know that's sort of on deck here uh like Dylan Trigg and a and um versions of horror and the alien and apocalypse studies, I think are, are doing quite a good job of this. So then that takes us to where we are now, which is this question of the death of this world. And so I think that we need to contend with the idea that uh, the world as we know it is not sustainable and then it's gonna change and transform. I think that climate scientists, for instance, don't really seem persuasive to a certain group of the population because all they're saying is, well, our living habitat is under threat. And they don't tell us why we need or want our living habitat other than in very sort of clinical descriptions of, well, don't you like the world as it is right now? And I think what psychoanalysis or what DNG would call schizoanalysis would confirm that, well, a lot of people don't like the world as it is right now that we do need or want it to transform. And if that's the case, then I think all these appeals to, don't you need or want or love this world? Don't you wanna keep it? Just don't really hold water. I mean, this was the whole Hillary Clinton campaign. She was like, if you like it, you get to keep it. Let's let's sort of you know, not give to this agent of chaos and transformation. I'm gonna sort of fundamentally keep things the same, which is also what Joe Biden's sort of election pitches right now. And I suppose there's always going to be a certain group of people who find comfort in the relative amounts of privilege that they've been able to accumulate for themselves, whether it be to have a mortgage and have a house or the other forms of life that they've built. But I think we're in a moment in which it's just unrealistic for the majority of people in most of the contexts that I know. And so they need and want things to transform. Um, philosophically, I think this is also associated with the question of new materialism, which is to say that I think that there's a lot of world thinking right now where people are saying, oh, um, you know, humans have been too human centered. So they're, they're, uh, down with not only the death of God, but also the death of the human, but then they just sort of expand the frame a little bit. And so they, um, are wowed or they find whiz bang ideas about, oh, well, humans and animals, human-animal relations, or humans in their environment. And I think environmental thinking has actually been going around for quite a while, and it's complicit in the neoliberal revolution. I think powers as it exists currently is fundamentally atmospheric and environmental. It doesn't necessarily directly intervene on people as much as a set of rules and conditions and programs and tables and 
you know, if, you know, when you're being arrested, the police officer will be like, I'm not arresting you because I want to, I'm arresting you because it's the law and it's the rules. And you go to the judge and they say, I'm not sentencing you to this. I'm just following the rules and the regulations. You know, you talk to just about anyone who's enforcing authorities and they will disavow their own authority in the situation. So I think that there's this fundamentally sort of atmospheric sense of how power has been set up and is operating right now as everything to do with um, the move towards quantification, the move towards um, incentivizing structures, the move towards being able to set up uh, behavioral ideas about how subjects work. And so I think that part of the idea of um, striking against the world too is about this idea of people finding ways to um, get leverage in a world in which it's so unclear who's oppressing us and how they're doing it because it's been so diffuse and fragmented. So, sorry, that was, that was uh, really long. Hopefully it wasn't a rant, but I was trying to connect all those ideas. <laughs> I thought it was good too, how you kind of underscored this. You did a, a nice uh, riff on the kind of classic Marx quote. There are those that who have hitherto only enlightened the world in various ways. The point is to darken it. Mm. Yeah. I mean that, that 11th thesis on Feuerbach is so essential in which he was saying that, you know, philosophers often see their job as interpreting the world, creating clarity or truth, but there needs to be a sort of force in thought in which the purpose of uh, thinking is not just to sort of enhance the ability for the person who's thinking to do more thinking and just some sort of solipsistic practice or to be able to be a greater master of truth. This is this is Nietzsche on the, the will to truth, for instance. And he says, instead, we need a will to power. We need thoughts that do things that have consequences. It doesn't have to be brutally pragmatic in the sense that, you know, I'm suggesting this thing that's immediately going to have people take action. But thoughts have to be interested in intervening. This, to just on a side note is that this kind of remind this is exactly like I had said earlier I'm extremely online this is exactly the sort of thing that I would post on on my Twitter as mm. this sort of riff this sort of germ of an idea um, mm -hmm. are you someone that do you participate on on Twitter at all or so any social media yeah it's funny so I have this sort of debate with my partner all the time of whether or not I would hate Twitter or not and whether <laughs> I should be on Twitter and I love the idea of Twitter in a certain way. I, I'm sure most people know this, but like Twitter was originally a protest tool invented by the Institute for Applied Autonomy in order to coordinate people's movements in the 2004 uh, Republican and Democratic convention in order to protest and hopefully shut them down. It was like a mass SMS tool. And that code was eventually sort of taken and reappropriated and made into a communications platform. Um, and I love text mob, you know, because I think we should be coordinating our actions and evading the police and disrupting the functions of politicians. But uh, the sort of blurting out reminds me more of slogans. And as I watched this uh, documentary on it, I think even it was uh, uh, Malcolm McLaren, you know, the, the stage manager for the Sex Pistols, owner of the boutique Sex with Vivian Westwood in London. So I guess that makes Sex, sex Pistols a bit of a boy band, <laughs> um, but himself also a sort of weird capitalist situationist. But anyway, he's talking about the situationist, and he says one of the key ideas behind language in the situationist is if you can't whittle it down to a slogan to fit on a placard, then you haven't thought about it hard enough. <laughs> and so, 
maybe that's Twitter. You know, if you can really whittle down ideas in order to fit in those 140 characters or, you know, what used to be 140 characters. I like that. I think that that polishing and condensing ideas is not doing them disservice because I think there's this weird appeal to needing more complexity. And so I, I, I kind of like it. But then, you know, I don't think that's really what people use Twitter for these days. Right. And it is, I think, I have that kind of weird relationship with it as well because on one on one side, it is very much, I think, this sort of postmodern, like, I don't know if there's a more, I mean, maybe Instagram since it's strictly more so based on image, but... I don't know, there's something I think fit that fits very well into the post-structuralist milieu of, and even like the kind of rhizomatic elements of, of Twitter. But as well, it's also like the kind of ANCAP like market. It's like the perfect, I think, microcosm for why oh, markets totally. are trash <laughs> at, yeah. at allocating yeah. things or recognizing what's valuable within society. Well, I have I have a really didactic academic research project that I'm doing right now that's about cybernetics. So cybernetics, coming from the Greek word for both governing and steering, comes about right, um, right in and through World War II, Norbert Wiener helping do gun control uh, or develop some math for um, automatic guns for the United States. His, complicated, his solution is too complicated, but it gives him the idea that what if you can imagine the whole world as just sort of sending and receiving information. Then you could hook up very different things, you know, uh, computers are as a result of this silicon with weird wires and different, um, completely different protocols and plates. And you put them into a large circuit in which the whole common denominator is a version of information that's being sent through all of them. Then you can have these wider and wider networks of things. And so that helps provide the uh, social model for our information society as we know it. And so now everything is information. It is sort of a market because it's seen as this sort of circuit. It is about the sort of like feedback and adaptivity and response. And so um, there are a whole bunch of libertarians who really love the idea of cybernetics. The weird thing for me is that it became really popular with hippies and people on the left and it basically led to environmentalism as we know it. And so I'm, you know, I've done some of the early research, but I'm trying to think of like, is there a way through? There, there are some people like my dissertation advisor thought that, you know, Marxism and communism and anarchism and DNG also works well with markets. But I'm super suspicious of that idea these days. And Twitter is definitely a sort of consequence of how bad it can get. Yeah. And I think the way that you can most clearly see the the kind of function that I'm discussing is you'll have, you know, very popular account or someone with the, you know, blue check mark like verified accounts just by virtue of them having accrued the capital of followers, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that any messages that they put out just gain more traction just because of that. So it's a nice little analog mm -hmm. between this sort of of how markets operate or how capitalism operates because by virtue of having capital, like capital is sticky. It's it's attractive, mm -hmm. right? It's got a certain gravity yeah. to it. So the larger center of mass you have, the mm -hmm. easier for is it, it it is for you to kind of just capture that free-floating attention or, you know, capital. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great sociological question, too. I mean, this is stuff that D&G deal with. Their third chapter of Anti-Oedipus is all, like I said, a universal history in which they try and look at different social forms through a vaguely sort of anthropological lens. And so right now there's an accumulative logic to things like Twitter, but it's different than the assembly line, which would be a version of mass society, which people are largely the same. I mean, there's some leaders or paragons of it, but it doesn't have the same market logic that we have today. There's this really weird network logic that we have. Whereas like one thing that they say is they don't prefer um, societies without a state, which is to say humans in a different form than they were even before leaders and hoarding emerged. But there are interesting social dynamics that go through them. They worked with this anthropologist, Pierre Clost, who wrote Society Against the State, um, to look at the ways in which war was used to prevent hoarding as well as accumulation of power where if one group accumulated a little too much power, then people would wage war on them in order to disperse or to centrifugally sort of spin off their version of power. So there are always these sort of almost like networks. And the other one is this um, exchange practice called potlatch in which people would gain social standing by showing that they could give away things, almost like the contemporary version of philanthropy. And so it meant that the people who had temporarily hoarded or accumulated the most stuff were always actually getting rid of it. And so it wasn't leading to a concentration of material wealth. They were temporarily gaining social status by showing that they could give it away to the poorest person, but then obviously that dissipates over time. And so once again, it's this constant sort of circulation of people getting rid of things. But like, how could that exist on Twitter? Right. I mean, like, how could people with the blue checks and tons of followers just like symbolically always get rid of those followers so then other people could um, pop up in the midst? That would be cool, but that's just not it's not how it's set up. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing you would have to that is the fall. There is this thing called the the follower Friday where you would sort of try to boost the signal of maybe your accounts that don't have the following that you do, ones that you enjoy and so mm -hmm. forth. So you can kind of boost that signal, but that's not exactly the same thing. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great if like every Friday Twitter celebrated the accounts with the most followers, but then reset their count to zero again? Like, that would really be kind of what the Clostrian potlatch would be like. Yeah. I've actually had this idea of doing because I just I enjoy posting so much just because the the randomness of it and mm -hmm. I just do this very stream of consciousness style but I've often thought of what if we had a posting the world series of posting and it's basically you start out with a fresh each party starts out with a fresh account and sees how much engagement they could create within like a sp specific maybe an hour 30 minutes something like that mm -hmm. yeah and I think that you know, the, the interesting thing about these experiments is that um, there's so much greater capacity of what can be done experimentally that just won't happen on these platforms because they're capitalist. They want to ultimately appeal to people who are going to give them money, people want to be satisfied over time. And so that's kind of one of my arguments in the book, too, that right now, uh, even people... Uh, who are thinking politically often think in terms of reproduction. So not just how you do something once and then it's gone and then you have to come up with a new way of doing it, but how can you do it now and over and questions of scalability. This is also what led people to think about, you know, UBI and other forms of like blueprinting what the future should look like. But 
you know, we're in a position where we don't need to defend the reproduction of a lot of things. You know, why have to bear the burden of running the new society when we haven't been given the need or the responsibility to? We can just take pot shots from the outside and do one-offs and come up with completely radically different experimental approaches. I mean, maybe I'm showing too much about teaching in art school, but um, that this is really what outsiders and radicals and anarchists are allowed to do so we don't need to get tied up in elaborate process it's absolutely unnecessary i think we need to be much more creative and think about production that will never lead to reproduction this definitely i think recalls your critique of of the rhizome a little bit and i'm going to kind of paraphrase you here because um, you kind of describe like the rhizome kind of lurching as this sort of amoebic form and kind of absorbing in and very much that has happened with mm -hmm. things like Google and Facebook. And I think more specifically, even just to back out and not say specifically Google Facebook, but I think the, the idea of the algorithm itself, mm -hmm. which I think that the algorithm is the new logic of virtual production, mm -hmm. that kind of ultimate generation and systemization of desire that's completely sort of cut off from any sort of real and it's just like the sea of difference that kind of drowns out um, anything that like it makes sort of class politics feel like sort of a quaint notion at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the big uh, attempts of connecting post-structuralism to politics, especially in the American or Anglophone context in the late 20th century, was to say it was the politics of difference. And so the idea was that difference was somehow asymmetric from the way in which statecraft was done. And so difference was more open-ended or more agile or more flexible than the state. And we would then be superior in some sort of showdown or conflict or um, agonism that would happen with the state. But here's the thing, capitalism is incredibly um, agile and is willing to engage in difference. The bet of anti-Oedipus is that anti-capitalists and communists could out-difference capitalism. And I think that this is also the case with questions of the rhizome. You know, if capitalism is rhizomatic, and it certainly is, I mean, just go walk into any Walmart or major store like that and just see how diverse the group of people who are there, who are shopping there. If the left can't be more diverse than, you know, a Walmart, then it's not doing it right. And so I think that one way to do it is try and be more rhizomatic than capital. But one of the terms I introduce here that shows up in a number of my other work comes from um, Galloway and Thacker in which they say, you also need a formal asymmetry. So if you find out that your enemy has one logic and they're playing according to certain rules, instead of trying to play by those same rules and do it better, you should figure out a different logic that isn't directly in contradiction, but that is actually sideways from it, that gives you certain sort of tactical and strategic um, exploitations and vulnerabilities of the logic that your enemy has, and then use that until it gets sort of co-opted or reconfigured. And so, you know, if you look at the history of uh, military doctrine for like the US, for instance, initially networks are really great with guerrilla warfare and fighters against the U.S. government, but then as it starts engaging in counterinsurgency operations during the war on terror, they become network-centric network -centric as well. 
And so if we're trying to overcome or beat the network or the rhizome, we need to come up with something that is even more interesting or uh, works according to a different set of principles that opens up new sort of exploits and vulnerabilities. See, I have this sort of Lacanian formulation of, like I said, this kind of where commodi commodities are virtual and so, and they're digital, so they're, they're unlimited. And so what capitalism can do is it can continually until, you know, really add infinitum, just create new desires and new desires that really have no um, grounding within the physical realm at, at, mm -hmm. at whatsoever. So that your autumn, your sort of wind up being stuck in this virtual zone where there's, there's no way out. There's no escape mm -hmm. from this kind of circular logic of it. Well, there's, there's, there's split in the same way in which Lacan wants to talk about the subject in which the desire may be um, in infinite in its virtual or symbolic content, but what it's able to deliver is all, uh, always limited. You know, um, I, I listened to your Todd McGowan episode, which is fantastic. And he said, you know, he loves the can of Coke because he doesn't want all the Coke. He, he necessarily needs to be limited so you can get your bite size portion of it. And so then it can be temporarily satisfied, but that you want to sort of go for more um, after uh, the desire grows again. And I think that uh, the wager for DNG is to try and make it infinite in all dimensions. Um, to really get beyond notions of scarcity and limitation. And you know, this is difficult for some people on the left who are, let's say, austerity socialists, who thought that the problem with capitalism is that it's too excessive and that we need to be more responsible with our spending and some sort of public bargain negotiated through the state is going to allot us all of what our responsible uh, uh, consumption accounts are going to be. But I'm very much about the sort of situationist, um, Bataillean, excessive left, where for us it needs to be about luxury. It needs to be about um, beyond account. It needs to be um, unemployed and freely unreserved. And um, if we haven't figured out how to do that within the material constraints of the world that we're existing in, it means that we just haven't figured it out enough. It doesn't mean that we need to just sort of go back to a notion of tightening our belts and scarcity. That kind of goes in the direction, I think, of your answer here to the to the rhizome is, is unfolding. And you've got a great quote here as well that I'll read. A communism worthy of its name pushes unfolding to its mm. limits. And I think that's kind mm. of what you're getting at, right? Am I, am I reading that correctly? Absolutely. You know, the versions of communism that we've been given through the 20th century were really just perverted forms of state socialism I really like Herbert Marcuse's critique of the Soviet experiment. He did it in the late 50s, I think, and actually taught himself enough Russian in order to read original source documents. And what he claims is that not only was the Soviet experiment through Stalin uh, a exercise in productionism, which is to say that it saw itself as trying to industrially produce in a better um, and more efficient way excuse me, than the capitalist uh, countries. And so then ultimately it would win by outproducing the capitalists who, you know, 
um, don't coordinate their activity. And so they produce a, a paltry consumer goods that really aren't good for anything. But it also means that you have firms that are undermining and fighting each other. Um, and that if they're able to plan the economy, then they might be able to succeed. Okay, you know, so that's one version of it. But he says the worst part of it is that it created a social and ethical system in which of the virtuous citizens and subjects of Russia themselves were seen as producers. And that that is such an impoverishment of what it means to be a human subject that it set them up to fail. And that's absolutely something that I see. Like communism is not that we are more efficient. It doesn't mean that we're better organized. I don't think it's because we're a better realization of the social good in the way in which we like root out perverts or antisocials, which is what a lot of socialists have often done. Like Cuba, right after the revolution, threw all their gays and queers in camps for a while. And I'm very much in what I call a anti-social anarchist, which is to really evacuate the social paradigms that are often associated with socialism that you even see with certain humanist anarcho-socialists. And to have a communism that is really about um, proliferation of identities, about a form of commonality that is really about that politics of difference that we that I talked about in the end of the 20th century, and that is all about excessiveness and it's about um, pleasure in a real genuine way. And I think that we've had a lot of figures of this, but I would uh, once again say that Georges Bataille is, is a major figure for me when thinking through these, these questions. I wanted to transition a little bit into the discussion in the book on the death of democracy. And you kind of talk here about democracy always relying on a transcendental, a transcendent judgment backed by the threat of force. And I think you went to this a little bit earlier very much reminded me of this kind of um, Sternerian critique of the law. And you say, Deleuze embraces a Marxism so anti-state that it refuses the project of democracy. Now, to, to liberals in the audience, this is a very scary, alarmist, so this rings bells, right? But I think this is more of a rhetorical move. Or Tell us a little bit about what you mean with the death of democracy. Democracy is one of the biggest sacred cows of the present, and I have no idea why people are so wedded to the idea. It is such an abject failure, and the things that it delivers us, particularly the forms of representative democracy that we have today, are just not even close to what the initial promises were, let alone um, any type of you know, social system people would want to live in. I mean, we live in a plutocratic democracy in which obviously the vast majority of decisions are made to satisfy a small a group of rich elites. But in so many ways, this is how it's always been. If you go back to the original Athenian democracy, it was a small group of land owning, largely sort of um, uh, hand-picked by kinship men uh, certainly no women would be there in, in the, you know, as part of the demos who would be a part of these democratic discussions. Um, uh, foreigners were not part of it, as well as slaves and people lived in people's homes. So really, it was just this patriarchal group of a limited group of the uh, male heads of household in order to make decisions for everybody else, which if you look at it is more or less what we have today as well. Um, perhaps even more sort of stilted and rarefied. So to say that we need or want democracy, I think that 
in very small, limited ways. It has allowed for a fight for inclusion of certain group groups of people to themselves become these patriarchal heads of household, but it hasn't significantly transformed a social image of what um, society should look like. And so I think that we need to get rid of uh, the, the versions of democracy, not only the real ones that we actually exist in, but the ones that we've been promised. Deleuze himself would agree with this. Um, with Guattari in What is Philosophy, he argues that the recent models of democracy that have been proposed in philosophy, such as endless conversations, the idea of a dialogue between two people, really are just what the uh, democracy was, which is a hege hegemonic consensus of a group of people who see each other as peers who don't even have the time of day for everybody else and that they themselves don't really see much in it. And so they in instead appeal to uh, utopian anti-capitalism that is about an undermining of those things and a creation of what they call a new people and a new earth, which is to say a new idea of what it means for people coming together as a group to constitute themselves on completely new different ideas and principles and a new earth which is to say uh the world around them like what they consider to be the constitutive elements of a way of life as well as its connection with all other um ways of life and so uh communism i think is is what that is for me it means an abolition of property it means an end of a class system and it's probably sort of post-commodity as we know it too. Um, the exact character that it takes isn't sort of um, something that I spend a lot of time on, but it does mean that it can't exist within a state. Even Lenin himself admitted it in like the state revolution. He says that communism is what happens when the state withers away. And so um, communism is my end goal. And I think that it should be others too. It doesn't mean that we'd be satisfied with that sort of communism, but I don't think dem democracy will ever deliver it to us. And I think all of the big figures in anarchism has always said this, you know, the putative quote for Emma Goldman that she herself didn't actually say, but that, you know, uh, if she can't dance, it's not her revolution, but also that if um, voting ever changed anything, they'd make it illegal. I, there's there's no way in which communism will ever be voted into existence. And so I think it's a very wrong way to pursue too much democracy. And I think that we need to pursue some reformism along the way in order to make our lives livable, but we shouldn't really spend much time or put much uh, investment in it. Exactly. And I really, really enjoy the this quote as well that I think what you just described sort of flows into is our communism is nothing but the conspiracy of communism against ontology. It is the conspiracy to destroy the factory of production. As a conspiracy, communism is a war machine that turns the autoproductive processes of the real into weapons for destroying any project built on metaphysical consistency. Which I yeah, think <laughs> definitely reminded me a lot of uh, of Stirner and his kind of critique of, of fixed ideas, but I thought that was a pretty, pretty hell yeah kind of quote. Yeah, I mean... Late 19th century has all kinds of these conspiratorial figures. I mean, you have um, Ravachol, you have uh, Auguste Lanqui and his sort of conspiracy of communists. You have the Russian nihilists. Um, you have the whole string of early 20th century assassinations of royal sovereigns. Um, you have the Bano gang. 
these are all people who I consider uh, super important figures in the history of anarchism. And I don't think it matches what our contemporary moment is, but I think our contemporary moments, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to promote these figures in a sense that I think people need to find their own orientation to it. And I'm not sort of calling to violence, but the conspiracy of uh, uh, fire cells in Greece, as well as um, uh, lots of insurrectionary activity in Italy. It's going all over sort of Latin America. Um, like these are the things that give me a lot more interest and motivation than, you know, a small syndicalist group who's trying to organize a neighborhood and make sure that, you know, they have safer streets or something. I think it's these moments of revolution and uh, revolt and rebellion. And perhaps the problem with glorifying any particular group is actually that it doesn't go far enough. And this is where I gain a lot of insight from the French um, notion of tikkun, T-I-Q-Q-U-N, that was sort of written about for a couple of years, from 99 to 2001, in which they say that if we're going to talk about a political party, there's only one we're talking about. They call it the Invisible Party, which is not a party at all. There aren't members, there aren't affiliates. The people who participate in it don't even call themselves uh, party members. And it's those people who are engaging in anti-social activity that basically changes the conditions of the world that we live in. So it's everything from uh, bank robbers to uh, people who um, break themselves out of jail. I mean, just like all of these things. And, you know, these aren't people that I really like, you know, they're not people that I would consider my close friends or I'm spending a lot of time with. But I think those are the elements of the undoing of the society that we have as we know it. And they're going to be the essential agents of what creates this new world. And I think that our politics is how to figure out to be in relationship to these people. Obviously, we shouldn't constitute ourselves as a gang. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we should constitute ourselves as the police in order to try and manage or administer or lock up those people in the process either. You have another really great riff quote here that I'm going to read. The schizo is dead. Long live the schizo. Mm hmm. This so this is my makes... oh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I was gonna say with the, uh, I think now especially with the, the social media and electronic devices, we, we all are sort of operating on this very schizophrenic, I guess milieu in terms of like, I have a podcast which is my disembodied voice. It's my, and then I have a, Instagram which is my my image, my skin rather, you know, my, my appearance, my physicality. And then mm -hmm. I might have Twitter, which is my thoughts. It's a weird, or even you could even maybe trace that back to my brain. These, these thoughts are emanating from these words or what have you. Um, so I think at least in a material sense, we're kind of operating in that world right now, but you really go in here too, to discuss how this is impacting us as far as, the dominant feelings today being anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. uh, these being expressed as a, as a vulnerability and a pervasiveness of trauma as a constant low level distress and through a generalization of contingency. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, the schizo as a figure is important for early D and G in anti-Oedipus where they say that in the transformation from, this more sort of Lacanian despotic sovereign society in which 
Um, our version of desire is the pervert king who's able to sleep with any member of his family to create incest, can have anything they want because they can infinitely appropriate um, from their uh, subjects as well as the earth, that everyone wants to be them, but they're prohibited from being them because they're not of royal blood. And so that's the, where you get all the ideas of the name of the father, of prohibition as an enabling condition, um, as about this question of Oedipus and, and uh, incest. They say that what's happened is we have a different model of desire today in which that model sort of persists to a limited degree. It still sort of continues. But instead, there's now this need to produce that's remapped onto the nuclear family. And that meaning is ultimately produced not by some sort of sovereign figure who is the state, who is the universe, but instead it's the commodity or the product or even money itself. And so that's a transition from the qualitative meaning of an individual figure uh, at the center of the cosmos to money, which is ultimately empty. It's nothing, it's a number. It goes from zero to infinity and everywhere in between. And so there are small amounts of recoding that has to happen to make us want Coca-Cola for some odd inexplicable reason. And you know, the teddy bears or the, the polar bear and the color red and that unique script, but they themselves are ultimately meaningless as well. And so the general characteristic of ideology that we have in our society, they call a sort of, um, cynical piety. So we remain pious, we remain believers of certain things, but it's cynical in the sense that we know that it's temporary. And so we will agree with it in one moment and they'll transform to agree with the complete opposite at another because the conditions have changed and it's forced us to agree in these different ways, which I think is actually a perfect way of describing Trump supporters these days in which if you ever have to argue with them, um, they don't agree in any sort of fixed propositional content. They'll always try and they'll, they'll immediately switch position even in the same thread because for them, it's not about a commitment to any like meaning structure. It's about this commitment to authoritarian itself. So this exists for all of us in relationship to capitalism, they say. And so the figure who's sort of trapped in the middle of this, but that is also sort of the least committed to it, they say, is the schizo, the person who uh, seems to not really have an identity because they're just sort of voicing all these other identities, that there are things that are constantly going through them. So they say, let's unleash these forces. You know, let's not become schizo, schizoid people, but let's take this sort of chaotic inability to settle on a single position and to be forced to go in all these different directions at once. Let's embrace that. And so that follows this sort of innovative experimental strategy in the mid-century coming out of people like Wilhelm Reich to say the problem is not how we're repressing or that we're not repressing enough. The idea is that we're repressing it all and you need to sort of unleash the flows and let it flow. You know, almost, I, I guess, like uh, uh, the emperor's egging on in Star Wars to say, you know, let the hate flow through you. I mean, that's the, the you know, I can just imagine D&G and, you know, the Dark Delos saying, let the hate flow through you. Um, so, I mean, that's the idea. But I think we're now in this other moment, like you said, of, of the Internet, where I don't think it's so much about let the pleasure flow through you, because I think that that once again has been recuperated in a funny sort of way through the happiness industry, as well as, um uh, marketing strategies and weird forms of sex positivism. And, you know, it, I think it's been incorporated to a large degree. Instead, I think we're back at this moment of 
let the hate flow through you because we're dealing with these forms of depression and anxiety. And so I think one strategy that we have is less about the sort of um, find pleasure and it's more about this weird way in which we modulate disconnection as well as unexpected or weird forms of connection in limited and very private ways. Um, Deleuze suggests this himself by saying that we need to create vacuoles of excommunication, where we need to drop out of the sort of communicational networks. And then Tikkun, for instance, says that it needs to be a modulation of our opening and closing. So we shouldn't just be open to everybody and everything in the way in which some sort of hippie would tell you to just be open to new experiences. But instead, it's about being very careful about what you're open to being very great at closing yourself off to a lot of other things. So then of the forms of openness that you have, they're very clearly and well curated that we're engaging in a form of disconnection so we don't get overwhelmed by the network, which is trying to fill in all these aspects of that, uh, us. And so then we can experiment in all these other sorts of ways and um, push against the world as it's sort of given and start inventing or fabulating uh, other, other uh, notions. I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. So I've, and r related to this idea is for me, I think the, the speed at which capitalism moves now is so fast, right? It's at the speed of light through these computer networks and systems and so forth. Mm -hmm. That, that is what is like, that is creating this, these negative effects that you're talking about in terms of this constant low level distress, because it's almost like, from like the image from 1984 of the the boot on the human face well that like mm -hmm. that boot is labeled desire <laughs> because mm -hmm. there's so much there's so much symbol and desire or signifiers and desires being thrown at us that mm -hmm. we can't ever grasp on to anything like it's so the speed at which that is moving is is what's creating a lot of this sort of that that low level trauma you describe Absolutely. So, so I've written a little bit about accelerationism. I should say that um, the way the internet in terms of memes and in just like general conversations understands accelerationism, I think it's not accelerationism at all. I think it's what I call, like I have an essay on accelerationism that helps clarify some of these terms, at least from my perspective, is uh, what I call boomerang dialectics. And it's something that Zizek actually supports, which is you need to make the world so bad for people to have it clarified in front of them, no longer this mixed kind of bad, kind of good, but so bad that then it encourages them to revolt because there's nothing um, that they're willing to sort of maintain or keep anymore. Um, whereas I think the original perspective accelerationism, which tends to fit note this very um, short passage from Antiedipus, says, take the underlying processes and push them to their limit or past the limit, really. And they cite a phrase from the radical analyst R.D. Lang where they say, you need a breakthrough, not a breakdown. And so the idea is that you're sort of encouraging the patient to try new things or to explore new perspectives. And you get them to a point where it doesn't sort of make them regress, but it actually makes them sort of radically transform who they are and become a new person. And it leads to this uh, transformation. And so for them, it's about the schizoid pole of capitalism in which it pushes through the problem of capitalism still ultimately re-territorializing on private capital in a small uh, portion of the capital owning class. And that what if the speed and the circulation was maintained? 
Like, what if we kept it? What if we used it? And so it creates an interesting image of strategy. So it's less about being worried that capitalism is going too far, but understanding that ha capitalism is a half measure. It goes kind of far, but then doesn't give us what we need or want as the other part of it. In, in the internet realm, I think this becomes a little bit more difficult though, because I agree, we do have this sort of rapid cycling that happens through the internet where it feels kind of overwhelming and then there's too much and there's everything. So the temporality that I sometimes suggest is a question of being both slower and faster than what we're given. So in certain ways, I think that uh, there are things that are still held back on the internet, like let's say content moderation and pulling down content. I mean, that's still um, moderation or uh, platforms trying to recover after some major event. They're, they're always reactive and they're always going slowly. But I think there are these ways in which people like during the green revolution in, in Iran, when people are using Twitter in order to coronate activity to evade the police that were going way faster than the state forces were ever able to predict because it was going on a platform. It would be uh, received far before they'd be able to sort of uh, uh, shut it down. And then people were developing very quickly these forms of uh, 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 protest and demonstration and movement. But at the same time, I absolutely agree that it doesn't always give us time to breathe or to make the forms of uh, connection between people, the forms of, uh, let's say, community. I don't like the word community, but the forms of community that um, uh, that we might value, the ones that we find significant. So I think that we both need to use some of these tools in a way that we can really capitalize on um, our agility and our ability to um, outmaneuver those that we're trying to uh, 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 circumvent. But then at the same time, understand that the speed can sometimes be really cheap and that we need uh, other alternatives to allow us to maintain the world and the, and the life that we want for ourselves. And so an example would be this book, um, the 2015 Baltimore Uprising. I think maybe it says Rebellion. I've, I haven't looked at it in a little bit. And it's where someone uh, screen capped all of a bunch of tweets from teens in Baltimore during the uprising after the killing of Freddie Gray by the Baltimore police. And it's all of them sort of participating in, commenting, and being a part of the Baltimore rebellion. But what they did is they took it offline. They didn't want to keep circulating it offline. They thought it would be more interesting and relevant if it was first made into a zine and then a print book. You can't even find a PDF of it online anywhere. And it's nice that the way that it's read and then circulated completely transforms when it's a book that's in your hand. You don't just pick and choose a few tweets. You read all of the tweets. It's been curated and arranged in a certain order. And you get this sort of holistic experience of everybody's lives and what they're thinking. And things are put next to each other, even though it's mostly chronological. And I think that that is the type of experiment that it calls for when we're thinking of these eccentric rhythms that are different than the ones that are given to us. That yes, people will be tweeting, but then you can also take it offline, and put it in this other form and create a new life out of it. Uh, that's really interesting. I'll have to delve into that. Um, you have another great quote here that I'll read. And then this will sort of wrap us up on, on the book is, um, Capitalism defeated traditional societies because it was more exciting than they were. But now there is something more exciting than capitalism itself, its destruction. And I think this really resonates now with what you see going on, you know, in Lebanon and Chile and Algeria and any number of places that you that aren't really getting that much attention. But it feels like maybe 
maybe that's where we are at this point. Yeah, I, so I get this from this experimental art documentary, well, not documentary, I don't know, art film called Get Rid of Yourself by Bernadette Corporation. And I like it, though I have a few friends in my life who always chide me when I quote it and use it <laughs> because they don't really like the milieu that it comes out of and they think it's kind of cheap and um, tries to be more than and better than what it really is. But like you, I love that quote. I think it's so phenomenal because it shows that the way to actually, you know, if we're attentive to the psychic dimensions of capitalism, the way to defeat it is not to be moralistic and say that it's led us astray and let's get back to real American values. It's about creating something more interesting and more exciting because that's what capitalism says that it offers. And so like you say, around the globe, there's so many places that didn't even get the American consumer experience that was uh, sold to the populace as the reason that we should be working these crazy hours for so little pay. And so they're given the promise, it was never delivered or is partially delivered, and it's time for something exciting and fun and different. And the first part of that is the dismantling of capitalism. That doesn't have to be the sort of like boring or long drawn out bureaucratic or democratic process. You know, um, it happens in these moments of excess, in these moments of releasing frustration, in these moments of experimenting and trying different things. I'd say that the most important events in my life were where I was at some sort of political event where things suddenly started not going according to plan. And that meant that the police and the other authorities there didn't know what was coming. And that was it. I mean, that's where moments of potential and possibility finally seemed to start opening and the air was electric. And you knew that even it sort of got contained eventually, usually by liberals who try and, you know, put you back on a path of process or tell you that the wrong people are taking action or something that in those electrifying moments, you knew that this is finally one of those rare moments where something can happen, where something could change. And I think that's it. I think that everything that I chase is trying to come back to those moments and recreate it in thought, in writing, in school, in the classroom, uh, when I'm meeting with friends in the social spaces that I'm a part of. And I think that that's really what the project of Dark Pillows is. Oh, that's a great summation. Great, uh, great way to wrap things up for us. Do you, um, just really briefly before I let you go for the day, um, what's your what's your next sort of next project uh, that you're working on, if you're willing to discuss it all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be working with University of Minnesota Press again. Um, Dark Liz, for instance, not only is in this sort of like beautiful, um, easy to hold, almost sort of like back pocket book you can buy for eight bucks. And there's even an online version of people don't want to do that on its on Minnesota's manifold platform. Um, plus, I bet you can buy it for cheap or even find PDFs around everywhere. Please do. You know, the, the money doesn't, you know, uh, support my living or anything. Um, but I, I have another book with them that was initially actually two very different projects that I, after struggling with for years, I finally just split them apart. And so I'm pursuing the the, the sort of more timely and, and forward thinking one, which I'm calling tentatively right now, imperceptibility to the politics of the unseen. 
And he begins with an opening introduction in which I argue that we're in a moment of the politics of disappearance or the politics of invisibility in which people have grown apathetic towards engaging in formal institutions, as well as not interested in even posing demands or even what might be considered a sort of post-identity politics, in which identity is at once a sort of motivating term, but they're not fighting for representation within formal spaces. And that this is defining perhaps the most interesting or ambitious, ambitious version of radical politics today. And that, you know, I make an argument for some scholarly thinking of it. I say that it finds a cousin in surveillance studies, but instead of focusing on devices and technologies like surveillance does, I'm interested in the people who are often the target of that surveillance who found new and interesting ways of uh, surviving and ways of life. And then I look at its aesthetic remediation of these politics in three very different sort of ways. One is the surveillance and circulation of black death through things like CCTV and police dash cam footage. And I try and think of sort of what's on the underside of that. So both criticizing that form of uh, way of seeing, trying to imagine other forms of struggle and action and seeing that look at uh, different sets of materials or, or try and look differently. I have a chapter on queer feminism that's both about our weird affective relationship with technologies where we seem to get pleasure in exposing and extracting ourselves for these capitalist industries and showing it and exposing ourselves to others, but then also um, feminist political projects that use emotion and feeling in radical ways that um, are about sharing those collective feelings of emotion and using them against sort of sources that make us feel bad and sad. And then finally, a section on what I'm calling sort of techno-anarchism that says, if we thought of the gorilla as this figure of sort of like network action, as well as these, you know, really wily anarchists of the turn of the century, how do we reimagine those in our new political context? Obviously, you know, Ted Kaczynski is a failed path. What's this other approach in which we intervene online and try and make sort of uh, strategic transformations? Um, so that's that book. And then I have the split up of it where I'm tackling all kinds of weird sort of structuralist anthropology and comparative mythology about the states and nets and gods and and all of that and we'll see what i shape that into it's 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 a little erudite it's a little wacky um but that's the sort of other path of this that i had split off from it and it made it a lot easier once i figured them as distinct projects nice that sounds extremely interesting um one final question for you would be for someone like myself who kind of dips their toes in this or has sort of dipped their toes in both the sort of anarchist world but also the the post-structuralist world, do you have any recommendations in terms of maybe some fundamental readings or projects or anything that I should sort of seek out or my listeners you would recommend seeking out if they have an interest in any of this kind of world? And that Absolutely. So... The first two that I'll suggest are presses run by anarchists who are right at this intersection and they're just pumping out tons of really interesting, great material. So one is called No New Ideas and they run a Tumblr and on their Tumblr are just links to things that they've helped translate or promote. I think that's phenomenal. Um, another project is called Ill Will Editions and they're Chicago Berlin based and they're once again sort of promoting a lot of this material. Um, connected to them kind of is the Italian insurrectionary anarchist tradition, which I'd suggest that people just kind of look up. They've had really interesting, important texts for a long time. They often come through uh, the United States through little black carts. Um, I know that in some ways, 
little black card has become a persona non grata with certain folks. I would say look past those really stupid, probably kind of internet-y type disputes and just read the material um, and form an opinion for yourself. There's some stuff that they publish that I find absolutely you know, idiotic and uh, not even worth recycling. But there are other things there that are really amazing that, that people need to be reading. I'd say within the left communist tradition as well, Endnotes is kind of a journal that a lot of people read. I like those folks. There's a sort of a version of it that um, uh, comes out of the region for me that is actually my preferred one. They go. The project is called um, um, Ediciones Ineditos, like a, in Spanish, uh, Inedited Editions. I think that's uh, probably one of the premier projects um, working with that, as well as a a journal kind of associated with them that uh, uh, works in the uh, Chinese context called Chuang. And then, you know, the older version of all this is like Wolfie Landstriker and Killing King Abacus and sort of this late 90s um, insurrectionary stuff. If people want to read Deleuze, which I like, but, you know, it's a very partial sort of thing. I would begin with Negotiations, which is a collection of essays. I think that they're all short enough and they're sort of more sort of samples. And you can figure out where you'd want to go with it. There's also a um, uh, piece called Dialogues that he did with uh, Claire Parnay. There's Dialogues 1, Dialogues 2. Dialogues 2 is just a re-editing and a more substantial version of Dialogues 1. So don't worry, you know, dipping into Dialogues 2 if you've missed anything. Dialogues 2 is really where you start. As well as some interviews that he did with Claire that were put on DVD, but I, I think those are sort of surface. You'll figure out where you want to go from there. He also did some, there's a collection of um, his essays, Desert Islands, which is pretty good, which once again sort of gives you a different sort of idea of the smaller things and know where to go from there, as well as um, some stuff he did on literature called Essays Critical and Clinical, which once again I think is just like a really great sort of beginning. You'll be able to find your feet after that. Um, yeah, that's probably good. That's probably even too much. <laughs> it's a good list. I like it. Uh, but Andrew, thanks so much again for joining me on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It's awesome to have have you on and have someone that I've like read an article from actually be on the podcast. I think that's that's probably a first, actually. So phenomenal. It's it's been such a pleasure. And hopefully, I didn't monologue too much. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Like I said, I'm a little bit out of my depth when it comes to Deleuze. So it was good to have your uh, expertise and just help me kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. Cool. But I will let you get on with the rest of your day, sir. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.